we're going to do first a little bit of a little bit of theological groundwork on sort of the the nature of who we are, you and I. We are saints. If we are in Christ, the word saint probably largely growing out of of uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church's usage, or the Eastern Church's usage, the word saint has come in our, in our sort of present day vernacular to, to, to mean some sort of, of, of hyper-elevated status. Not a, mere, not a mere Christian, a saint. And even in our, even in our sort of evangelical usage, informally, we'll say things like, you know, my, my grandmother was a saint. And we mean a person who is um, especially or extraordinarily godly, at least as far as we can observe. Um, the, the, the problem with that usage is it, it, it preempts it, it can cause us to misread biblical passages that address saints so as to think those passages are, are addressing these, these mythical, hyper-elevated sort of Christian plus Christians, not just plain folks Christians like you and I. But, for example, in the... Uh, We've been in, in 2 Corinthians for a while on Sunday mornings. We'll be in 2 Corinthians for a while yet to come. In the salutations of both 1 and 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a list of different categories. Um, he's, he's writing to the church, comma, who are those sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are called to be saints. It's the same population. The, the salutation in 2 Corinthians Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Achaia is the province of the Roman Empire of which Corinth was the principal city, um, pretty, pretty closely corresponding to the southern half of modern Greece. Uh, Corinth had come to be the the largest city of that region, eclipsing in prominence by the first century, Athens, by, by quite a bit, much to the Athenians' chagrin. At any rate, he says this is, this Second Corinthians is to the, to the members of the church at Corinth and all the believers in Achaia. The word he uses for believers there is saints. He doesn't mean to the members of the church at Corinth and then whatever odd handful of super-duper Christians are living near there. <laughs> No, it's, it's everybody, which means if you are in Christ tonight, you are a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian, and those terms all mean the same thing, being a saint is not an achievement you strive for. 
It is a state of being to which the grace of God has brought you. You are a saint. The word in its most fundamental sort of parsed, parsed out um, etymology means one who is separated, one who has been set aside for something non-typical. You have been called out of the default state of fallen humanity and called to be something else. Yet, those of us who are in Christ, and I'm pretty confident that's most in a Wednesday night fellowship hall Bible study at McGregor. If you're here tonight and you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. Um, and I hope before you would spend a great deal of time among us as one who doesn't know Christ, you would deem it appropriate to have a conversation with someone there at the table with you or me or um, one of us about what it is to, to know Jesus and to be known by him. This, this thing of sin is an enormous problem. It's, it's hurting you now. And if you're outside of Christ, it gets way, 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 way worse. And then it gets worse. So come to Jesus if you haven't. But if you have, you, you can identify with, with what Paul sums up in Galatians 5, 17. And by the way, I'm all over the place tonight uh, in, in the Bible. I'll try to be deliberate when I'm headed somewhere. If you want to flip and, and get there or you can write it down. Galatians 5, 17 spells out the conflict. For the desires of the flesh, and in most cases, when the New Testament uses the word flesh, it's talking about, you can, you can use the old nature. That's, a, that's not an exact synonym, but it's close. The old nature, you can think of it as the, the part of me that redemption hasn't transformed yet. The backward drag of my fallen state. The old man. Sometimes flesh in the New Testament means meat. Like to, to eat flesh. Um, but context will make it very, very clear. Most of the time, it's referring to that, that sort of backward drag of the old nature. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inhabits every believer, and the Holy Spirit within every believer is working out the image of God in that believer. The change from old creature to new creature happened at the new birth. What Ezekiel calls the replacing of the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, that happened when you were born again. But oh my, does the flesh want to drag us backward. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Does that dynamic sound familiar to anybody in the room except me? 
sounds real familiar to me. I am intimately acquainted with the backward drag of my flesh. Everybody in the room that's not so deeply into lying to yourself, you won't even admit it to yourself, knows exactly the dynamic Paul is describing here. He, he describes it in a bit more detail, but it's the same thing in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, I'll just read verses 15 through 20. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it, the law, is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but, but sin that dwells within me. My, my, my native mode, my new nature is to conform to the desires of the Spirit, to desire to please the Lord. But sin still dwells within me in the embodiment of that, that, that flesh. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I act contrary to my nature when I sin, yet I sin. I understand that in, uh, in the U.S. military, probably other militaries as well, there's a term, conduct unbecoming. And I'm not going to try to use the term super technically, but I've, I've seen it just expressed in those two words. I've seen it conduct unbecoming an officer, a longer form. I'll risk a little bit of a description, though I will apologize in advance for the technical inaccuracy of my little description. Seems to me it's a term for um, you ought expect more of yourself because of the role to which you aspired and which you attained that of an officer. And now you're going to act like you acted. That is conduct unbecoming an officer. In light of what Christ has done for us, what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, that, that residual backward drag sin tendency is conduct unbecoming a saint. It doesn't, it doesn't fit us anymore. In fact, it's a very dangerous thing. We'll talk about the searing of the conscience in a, in a few minutes. It is a very dangerous thing for you to tolerate sin. And I hope it will be a recurring theme of this study. Certainly, it will be part of where I want to leave you tonight. That when we talk about less tolerance for sin... We're not talking about in the people you know as much as we are talking about in ourselves. Because we, we have taken 
what is a, a, a scriptural idea and we've torqued it internally, I hope internally, into something else. What is a scriptural idea? Huh. As, I'm, as I'm preparing to preach this coming Sunday, um, in 2 Corinthians 5, in the, in, the, in the passage that I've got to deal with this coming Sunday, we're going to be taking a look at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, and by necessity, when we look at the judgment seat of Christ, we have to take a moment and look at the great white throne judgment as well. Those are two different future judgments for two different groups of people. And I won't preach Sunday morning's message here, um, though it would take some time pressure off Sunday morning if I did. <laughs> a, a pair of doctrines that emerge in a study of, of the end times judgment of believers and unbelievers. It's the doctrine of degrees of reward and the doctrine of degrees of punishment. Now, it's very important to know that those degrees of punishment in hell don't mean that hell is pretty okay or really, really bad. No, hell starts at unimaginably horrific, burning alive forever and gets worse. Just like with degrees of reward. Well, I'm going to be in heaven, but I'm not going to be in a good neighborhood. Oh, the whole thing is a good neighborhood. <laughs> now, one of the offshoots of the doctrine of the degrees of reward and the doctrine of degrees of punishment, and I know I'm moving quickly through this. Sometimes we say, well, you know, no sin is worse than any other sin. That's not true. That idea is not supportable biblically. Remember, Jesus told Tyre and Sidon, it's going to be worse for you in the day of judgment than it was for Sodom. Well, that means Tyre and Sidon had done something more offensive than Sodom had done. Now, what happens, and this is a protracted rabbit chase, but it's an important one. There are not degrees of condemnation. And any sin is sufficient to condemn you. So in that sense, one sin's as bad as another. Any sin of any sort will condemn you to hell forever. In fact, it has condemned all of mankind to hell forever, except for one extraordinary group of people, the saints. In that sense, one sin is as bad as any other. There are no degrees of condemnation. Condemnation is one is either condemned or one is not condemned. But within condemnation, there are degrees of punishment. Well, we've taken the notion of, of degrees of punishment and we've, we've sort of thrown a blanket over, over how we deal with sin, particularly our own, the doctrine of degrees of punishment should not give us permission to trivialize sin. The reason for a study like this one is to, to caution ourselves and catch ourselves should we fall into the trap of trivializing, tolerating our sin. 
James 2.10 is a, is a classic verse on the, on the condemnatory power of any sin. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, that's a, that's a punchline sentence on a whole line of thought that James has been developing regarding a behavior that he wants to point out is particularly problematic, but his recipients were not treating as sinful at all. What James has just been dealing with is treating wealthy people better than you treat poor people. Having a more polite and more deferential, a kinder approach to somebody when you know they're loaded than you would have to that same person if you suspected they were impoverished. Oh, come on, Russell. I mean... Rich people are more polite. They can sometimes be cleaner. They're easier to interact with. If you treat them well, they have the capacity to treat you well. You know what I'm saying? It's just networking. You would network with a destitute homeless person. I mean, if that's sin at all, it's not a serious one. And in that very discussion is where James said, keep the whole law and offend on one point, you may as well have broken it all. That's the very sin that James's recipients were trivializing, the sin of partiality along economic lines. Specifically, specifically, it within the church. So we take the notion of degrees and we do a couple of things with it. We probably, these things came up in your, in your table talk with the early questions. Two, two strategies. First, first we, we dilute sin by sort of airbrushing the terminology. That couple is not fornicating. They might be sleeping together. Well, you know sleeping is not the problem. But we don't, we don't, fornication is an ugly word. But it is, it is the term for sexual activity outside a marriage relationship between two people who aren't married to each other. That's fornication. It is not fooling around. It is not sleeping together. But we... We cringe a bit at those harsh, archaic words. He's not a thief. He may have, there may have been some, 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 some small fraud on his tax return, or he may have fudged something on an expense report, but he's not a thief. Well, yeah, by definition, he is. My personal favorite example here, it's not my favorite thing to encounter, 
Well, you know, they're having an affair. That sounds like a, in a, in a, in a perfect world, you would be describing a, a six-year-old girl's tea party for her friends. They had an affair yesterday afternoon. They all put on fancy hats and sipped tea together. Because the word adultery sounds so harsh, so direct, so, well, borderline tactless. So we, we dilute He was my friend. We worked together well. The first finance committee chairman I ever served alongside as the administrative pastor of a church. This is 1987, Memphis, Tennessee. I won't even name the church. If you know my biography, you can name the church. It was before I served at Bellevue, a church I served for a couple of years. Much more than that, I'm going to have somebody whose second cousin was the finance chairman at this church in the late 80s, and you're going to think I'm talking about your friend or your cousin. His name was Jim. Jim had… Jim would sometimes be very, very brusque with people because he thought that was an effective way to communicate. At that time, he was twice the age I was then. He's, he was younger than I am now. It's funny, when you're, when you're a 26-year-old administrative pastor, everybody on the finance committee is older than you. You know, you say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am a lot in those meetings. Not a bad habit. But after two or three, uh, you know, once-a-month meetings, after two or three, I, when I had seen him kind of be caustic with his brothers and sisters serving on the committee, I, uh, I caught him after a meeting, and I said, so, somewhere life seems to have taught you that being just kind of abrupt with people is, is appropriate. And his response was, I do that because I want them to understand me. I said, well, I'm, I'm relieved. I, I thought you did it because you're a jerk. <laughs> Which in that moment, what was I being? A jerk. We, we, come, up with, we come up with better words to describe our own behaviors. Rather than labeling them in biblical categories... And facing the fact that some of our behaviors, even some of our behaviors with, whom, with which we may have become habituated and quite comfortable, would nonetheless align with biblical categories of sinful behavior. That's just who I am. Would you, would you accept that from a serial arsonist? No. Not only do we dilute... We also deflect. We talk about our sinful society as though we somehow exist in a vacuum apart from it. Our sinful culture. 
all that garbage coming out of Hollywood, which, by the way, is coming right into you through your Netflix, Amazon Prime, Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, uh, HBO, and Cinemax subscriptions. It's not out there. But we, it's, it's so easy when we talk about sin to either dilute it with terminology or deflect it to a they-them issue instead of an oh-my issue. What about us? What if, what if envy and covetousness were as much a part of the Ten Commandments as murder and adultery? Oh, wait. That's number 10, isn't it? Last on the list, hanging on by a thread, but, but it's there. What if, we, what if we tolerated having a covetous heart the same as we would tolerate having a murderous heart in ourselves? Somehow, our culture, and by our culture, I mean me and you, raise covetousness to the level of a virtue. Oh, we would never call it that. Brother Russell, it's, it's, it's just ambition. It's the desire to do better. That's the danger because ambition lives on the edge of a very high cliff where covetousness yawns beneath you. Gossip. Ooh, I cannot wait to get to my life group and share this prayer request. <laughs> I don't want to kill your prayer request time. I learned a long time ago the three fastest ways to disseminate information are telephone, telegraph, and telebaptist. And I can pick on Baptists because we're family, right? I'm certain the Presbyterians and the Methodists have no similar issues. Gossip. If you are not involved, now, can we call on our brothers and sisters to pray? Of course we can. And benefit of the doubt, that's what our prayer requests most typically are. But in terms of your, your sidebar conversations, if you are not contributing to either causing the problem or solving it, turn to your neighbor, smile, and say, I don't think that's any of my business. Go ahead, it'll feel good. I bet if you did that two or three times between now and the end of the week, you'd feel good. When someone says, have you heard? I don't think that's any of my business. Pride. Baseball is not our national pastime. Pridefulness is. 
bitterness or grudges. There was some news story, I don't remember what it was. It was a sound bite on the news, but the individual was speaking of someone who had done some horribly criminal act to their family. And the sound bite that played over and over again, and every time I heard it, I cringed. I can never forgive them. I can never forgive them. And, I, and Gail was sitting there with me, and I said, I, I hope that, that that individual, whoever that is, first, I hate their pain. They're obviously in a profound amount of pain. Something horrible has happened to them. I, I hope they're not a follower of Christ. Memorializing on video forever their lack of capacity for forgiveness. Unforgiveness and bitterness is something to which you have no right. You have no right, child of God. If you grasp the magnitude of just wrath which you have earned by the most minute of your sin, that an absolute, holy, perfect God could justly condemn you forever for the smallest speck of sin because when compared to his standard of absolute holiness, your smallest speck of sin is a mountain of filth. Your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Imagine your unrighteous ones. If you get the magnitude of your guilt, you will more fully appreciate the magnitude of his grace. And you have been forgiven far more spectacularly than any conceivable thing you could ever be called to forgive. Stop giving yourself permission to be unforgiving. Brother Russell, you don't know what they did. I don't have to know what they did. I know what you did before a holy God. And if you claim Christ as your Savior, I don't know the details, but I pretty well fill it in. Unforgiveness. Fruitlessness. I'm not going to do the catalog tonight, but the fruit of the Spirit. Again, Galatians 5 are a catalog of the characteristics that God the Holy Spirit is drawing out in the heart of the child of God. It's a, a, it's a, it's a good, concise diagnostic of how, how are you doing as you grow in grace? How are you doing as the image of God is, is drawn out of you, child of God? Are you growing in love, joy, peace? Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-discipline. Each of them have an opposite number. The, the sinful state toward which you wish to be drawn, your flesh wishes to draw you back. And in those opposite characteristics, we find a lot of things that we 
we could just file under, well, <laughs> well, that's just the way I am. The opposite of love is not seething, virulent hatred. The opposite of love is disengaged apathy. If love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another, the opposite of love is, I don't care what happens to you, not, not the angry version, I don't care. So funny in marriage counseling, if I can get a couple to express anger toward each other, I've been given something to work with. What scares me more is when one or the other says, I, I, I honestly don't, don't care anymore. I have no emotional response whatsoever to what they do or not do. I'm completely disengaged from that. That is when love has flipped to its opposite number. How, how comfortable are you with apathy in situations and with people where you ought to be expressing love? I sometimes wonder, ooh, I'm about to get personal <laughs> with you, not with me, of course. Yeah, we're, we're family. Forty years now, I've been a, 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 a church vocational worker. A lot of those years in administrative ministry, the last several as an elder here. We do, we do uh, member meetings and we talk about really big consequential things, things that really affect the life of this body of Christ. And yet you don't come in masses. And I know it's a mixture of two things, and I'm not picking on anybody personally. I truly, truly am not. It's a mixture of two things. On the one hand, it's trust. I trust this body of Christ. I trust those who, who are called to shepherd this body of Christ. I'm, whatever, whatever things come down from our elder body to our congregation, I, I so completely trust that. I don't, I don't need to get my hands dirty hearing the gory details. That's trust. But some of it could be apathy. Toward a group of people whom you ought to love, your church. Yeah, but I know. The opposite of, the opposite of, of joy is, is despondency. Despondency. I'm just, no, you don't understand. I just have a, a melancholy temperament. Okay, give that to Jesus. Joy is that settled conviction that everything that matters forever has been settled forever. And if you possess that settled conviction that everything that matters forever is settled forever, you ought to have a few more days where that joy shows up as actual happiness. I am glad that actual happiness all the time is not a fruit of the Spirit. Actual happiness all the time can be annoying. But a lack of growth in joy is sin. 
no matter what your wiring is. You don't get to just be Eeyore all the time. Peace. The opposite of peace is worry, which, by the way, Jesus really came at hard in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Brother Russell, you don't understand. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, let me help you with that. No one does. You're in a level playing field. Worry Worry happens when we, when we accept the kind and wise providence of God as a theoretical matter, but we figure it doesn't apply in our case. Or worse, we, we know that God is both kind and, and wise, and he's in charge, but there's this horrible possibility that he's not going to give me my way. He may not. But if he doesn't, it's for your good and his glory. And your, well, I'm just a person who worries. No, substitute a sin you wouldn't tolerate in that same sentence. I'm just a person who burns down houses. I'm just a person who molests children. Worry is a sin. Patience. Impatience seems to be another sin that we have elevated to a status of a virtue. I'm, I got, I got things, I got things, I got things to do. I got, th- I got, I got too much going on for this. I'm, I'm so busy. I'm so buried. I'm so, I got to be popping from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. Patience. Patience. Ease up. Well, I'm just an impatient person. See how we do it? We, we create these terminological models wherein we're giving ourselves permission to proceed in a way that is sinful. Like, well, I'm just an impatient person. Well, I'm just a serial killer. I mean, and again, I know there are degrees of guilt. I'd far rather you be an impatient person than that you be a serial killer, make no mistake. But being an impatient person would condemn you to hell if you were guilty of nothing else. It's a sin. Kindness. This is where my, my friend, the harsh committee chairman, and my treatment of him, ironically. The fruit of the Spirit is, is, is kindness, not harshness. Not harshness. Well, I just think you ought to be direct. Be careful with that. Certainly, one should seek to be clear. But not harsh. I made this mistake repeatedly in the earlier years of my married life. The good news is God the Holy Spirit and Gail, one of his chief accomplices in my life, trained it out of me to a degree. To a, not, not to the degree it ought to be gone, 
but at least I'm aware on more of a hair trigger. Goodness. Goodness, the opposite of that is moral laxity. Are there things that used to offend you that don't offend you anymore? Are there areas where your conscience has eased up, more likely given up? Growth in goodness is a growth in sensitivity, not a growth in tolerance. Gentleness is a lot like kindness. The opposite is maybe something like abruptness. Faithfulness is an interesting one because, we, because we're reading it in a biblical context, we want to make faithfulness about faith in terms of, 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 of one's beliefs. But in this context, that's not what it means. Faithfulness here means you are dependable. You're a faithful employee. You're a faithful spouse. You are, you are reliable. In fact, if you were paraphrasing the fruit of the Spirit, reliability might be a good paraphrase for what is meant here by faithfulness. You're not late all the time. You're not leaving other people hanging in terms of obligations, deadlines. If you say something is covered, it's covered because you said so. It's not, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, clunk, I thought you said you had it. It's, no, I got it means I got it. That's faithfulness. The opposite of that is flakiness. If the people around you cannot rely upon you to, to be what you say you are, to be where you say you'll be, and, you know, flat tires and dead batteries happen, but if you've just given yourself permission not to be reliable under this broad blanket of, well, that's just who I am, that's tolerating sin in yourself. Self-control, oh my. The opposite of self-control is external control. I, um, I have to ride the brake on gluttony with both feet every day of my life. I am a self-inflicted type two diabetic who has ridden, I have, I have gained and lost a middle school classroom. <laughs> I have been as heavy as well north of 300 pounds. And by the way, you weigh what you want to weigh. I am not talking, I am not seeking to heap condemnation on anyone, but oh, do I know how easy it is to cuddle up to the sin of gluttony where I'm eating everything I can reach as opposed to that one definition of self-control is when I walk away from a situation, I have done exactly what I intended to do. I have said exactly what I would have intended to say. I don't lose it. 
if I'm self-controlled. Versus being com- responding to compulsion from things outside myself. And I know the, the terminology of addiction, and I won't even argue that there are some medical and psychological syndromes that, that, that blend in with all of that. I'm not suggesting that's not true. But the fruit of self-control has an opposite number sin. And so we cannot allow the clinical language of addiction to absolve us of the sin guilt of being other than self-controlled. It's both and. It's certainly not something other than sin. Well, this is a fun study. (laughs) Hang on. It's going to get a little worse before it gets way, way better. Sin is like a malignancy. Some of you have experience with with cancers. Some of you have had, some of you have had biopsies where it came back good news. Um, I had a couple of, I had a couple of scrapes taken this morning, my every six months with my derma. I grew up at the beach in an era where nobody ever heard of sunscreen. And so every now and then I get weird things, frozen, carved, scraped or whatever off of I'm just a farm for those little things. Uh, My dermatologist did not like that a noteworthy, I thought it was just a freckle, but she showed me pictures from a couple of years back when it was a way smaller and way lighter freckle than it was this morning. So I have a biopsy coming from a dark, weird spot on, of all things, the outside of my second toe on my right foot. I hope it comes back innocuous. If not, I suppose they'll take off. It's hilarious that I, as a diabetic, would lose a piece of a toe to cancer, not neuropathy. Um, Well, hilarious in a very narrow context, you understand. (laughs) When I was diagnosed with diabetes, my endocrinologist at the time, a jolly old fellow who has since passed away, said, Russell, the object of the game now is for you to die of something else. So, wow, this goes from bad to worse. All right. I won't push it any further. It's a, it's, a, it's a malignancy. It grows and the conscience gets seared. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about people whose conscience are seared. The conscience and God the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. But the conscience is the, is the sound system employed by God the Holy Spirit if, you're, if your walk with God is growing. God, the Holy Spirit, can switch on your conscience and speak to you through your conscience. Or you can burn that sucker out. Well, it must not be sin. I don't feel bad about it. Congratulations, you've seared your conscience. Zip. You cauterize that thing to the point that it is sealed off and ineffective. That's why we don't trust our own judgment, right? Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 19. Your awareness of your own sin cannot come from your checking your own internal feedback loop. 
Since I am not telling myself that it's sin, it must not be. Your awareness of what is sin has to come from God's word. The word of God is the vocabulary of the spirit of God in the heart of the child of God. The Bible is God the Holy Spirit's script for you. You know, we jokingly say, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. You want to hear God speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. It grows until the conscience can be seared. Unlike most malignancies, it can spread to others. It is, it is a communicable malignancy. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Notice he doesn't say let no corrupt talk. though no, that's addressed elsewhere. In, in this context, don't let your speech have a corruptive influence on others. Don't let the, the, the illness of sin in you, the malignancy of sin in you, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It grows within, it spreads to others, and it grieves the Lord. Very next verse, Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, obviously, he's talking to and about believers. Unbelievers were not sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. So, believer, you are, you are grieving the Lord by your, by your sin. So, what's the remedy? Jesus. You will never stand in judgment regarding sin and righteousness, child of God. You will not. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment on sin. It is a judgment of stewardship. I'll have a bit more to say about that this coming Sunday morning. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The judicial character of the atonement is such that your sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, your sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Which means the casual sin that no longer bothers you in your own life is a part of the awful, bloody, horrific punishment inflicted upon Christ on the cross. You're you are, you are, have compounded his suffering by your ongoing sin. He who sees the end from the beginning isn't time-bounded. You understand that. When he died on the cross for sin, he didn't die on the cross for some undifferentiated blob. The iniquity of us all, a specific catalog of sin, which guilt he bore, which punishment he took, 
You really ought not be casual about it. It's a, it's a fairly new lyric. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm like a lot of you. I like the old stuff. This lyric is fairly new. It was written in 1776. I prefer older stuff. That's why I'm glad when we sing the Psalms. But I can live with this when it's 250 years nearly. It was written by an Englishman on the wrong side of the Atlantic Ocean in 1776, written by a loyal subject of King George III, so, so ease up this 4th of July weekend. The hymnist's name was uh, Augustus Toplady. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not make me huddle within a doctrine of degrees of punishment thinking the stuff I'm doing is all lightweight so that it's not a big deal. Here's what we need to do. We need to acknowledge that what the Bible calls sin is sin. And our gravest concern is the sin in ourselves. Call it what it is. Call yourself out for it. Repent of it. Hate it. Don't tolerate it. Don't excuse it. Be absolutely ruthless in your treatment of yourself with reference to sin. Oh, I think we need to be good to ourselves. Oh, be careful. If by that you mean cuddling your sinful characteristics, no, 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 a thousand times, no. Be ruthless and love him for the forgiveness he has extended. As you deal plainly with yourself about your sin and deal truthfully with the magnitude of his astonishing grace, you shall love him all the more. A moment ago, I was in Galatians 5. Oh, the glory of Galatians 5, 16. This, this is the dagger at the heart of sins we tolerate. But I say, walk by the Spirit. That is, by prayer, by study of God's Word, by the conscious cultivation of the awareness of his forgiveness. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice there are not two commands in that verse. There's one command and a result. I have heard this verse taught as though there were two commands. There's two things we need to do. We need to walk by the Spirit, and we need to not gratify the desires of our flesh. There are not two commands in this verse. And that is a magnificent truth 
that God has given us. The key, walk in brighter light, you will see the dirt more clearly. And then when you realize what he has done with that dirt, you will love him all the more. And you'll become less tolerant of sin. In the arena where it's doing you the most harm, you know, you and me. Thank you.